Amen. Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that his name is called Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough that you'd rather die than live without us, that you sent your son to pay the price that we could not pay. And Lord, I just pray as we go to your word right now that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So if you didn't get one earlier, raise your hand. All right. If you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 11, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 11. Hey, I want to encourage you. There are neighbors, friends, co-workers who, if you ask them to come to church on Sunday, would probably come. Amen. So I want to encourage you that, you know, so there's some people that only come at Christmas and Easter. Don't let them miss one other two times a year when they go to church. Amen? Amen. Because I promise you they, we're, they will hear the gospel this Sunday. Amen? And you know what? Eternity's hanging in the balance. We should not take that lightly. So I want to encourage you, just like the way we were so, you guys were so faithful inviting so many people to come a couple Wednesdays ago for Potter's Field, we ought to have that same heart to see people come and hear the truth of God's Word. Amen? All right, catch you up really quick. We come to the point where the children of Israel, we've been traveling with them. We've seen them being delivered out of bondage in Egypt. It came through the Passover, through the shedding of blood, they were delivered out of bondage. They then passed over the Red Sea, a picture of what? Two people know? A picture of what? Water baptism, right? It says in 1 Corinthians that passing over the Red Sea is a picture of water baptism. So Exodus, the blood of the Lamb being in the shape of a cross, allowed people to be delivered out of bondage, the children of Israel, and then they went over the Red Sea. The the enemy was coming against them. They were backed up against the, the water, and God delivered them. He parted the Red Sea, and they were delivered. Now, we know that God had a greater plan. They were at Mount Sinai. He delivered the law unto them, and they were to go directly into the land of promise. But we know what happened. We know that on their way to the land of promise, they began to murmur. And finally, when they got there, they sent spies into the land who came back and said, there are giants in the land. Now, sadly, they listened to the spies who brought back the bad report as opposed to the two who brought back the good report. And praise God that we don't vote on things in the church, amen? Because if you did, you get the ten people vote, oh, there's giants in the land, we can't go in. But you know what? God overrules everything, amen? By the way, if you're trying to figure out what to do and you've got a hundred people saying this and God says that, God's right, amen? And you plus God is the majority and you do what God says, not what men say. And so they didn't go into the land of promise and that entire generation spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, you know, eating dust, swatting flies, and eating manna, right? And they literally died in the wilderness, never entering into all that God had for them. And that's a picture of many Christians today, born again, you know, baptized, going to heaven, but missing out on all that God has for them. No doubt there's some in the room tonight that maybe feel that that's where you're at. Maybe you're doubting God. You haven't stepped into all that God has for you. Well, here's the good news. There's a refreshing. The Lord desires to pour out His Holy Spirit upon us all. And that's what the Jordan River is a picture of. When they passed over the Jordan, it was a picture of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now we know in the Bible, in Luke, that He breathed the Holy Spirit into them, 
And then he said, go and wait for the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. So there is a subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit in addition to the Holy Spirit coming in us at salvation. If you're spiritually dry, you need more of the Spirit within you. Now, we see that they're gonna, they were revitalized as they went over the Jordan, and so too for you and I. But as they went over the Jordan, the battles were still waiting. You know, guys, if we're walking in the center of God's will, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the more on fire for God we are, the greater target we are for the enemy. And we're going to see that in the chapter tonight. You know, Satan's resources are limited. Who's he going after? Those who God's using. So if you're not being persecuted, start walking closer to the Lord. Amen? Because, you know, again, those who the Lord loves, He disciplines, and at the same time, those who are walking with God, the enemy will come after. Have we seen this far? Israel's venture into the land of promise, the enemy was waiting for them. Right when they walked in, the first thing they did was run right into a great fortress. The fortress was called what city? Jericho. That was a little better, all right? They go into Jericho, and again, we see the Lord show up, and the Lord gives them direction because He knows that they need to hear a word from God before they go into a great trial. We'll talk about that tonight. And the Lord said, march around Jericho. Again, 25-foot-tall walls, 20 feet wide, this mighty fortress, and they're told to march around and blow trumpets. Not to say a single word. God wanted them to see the greatness of their enemy up close for seven days so they would realize the greatness of their God when He brought the walls down. Guys, when we pray and we don't see an answer to prayer, often it's because God wants us to realize the greatness of the obstacle, the greatness of the trial, the greatness of the struggle, so that we might understand the greatness of our God when He delivers us through it. Amen? If He delivered you in one second every time you had a trial, you would never have an opportunity to grow in them. Amen? It would just become a magic wand. Oh, Jesus' name. Oh, it's all gone, right? And you never have any trials. But God allows us to go through trials so that we might grow spiritually. So they faced this great enemy, and guess what? The further on they went, the greater the enemies would get. Jericho was the greatest enemy they had seen thus far, but sadly what happened, as we know, that Achan brought back some of the spoils. God said, this is the first battle. It all belongs to me. When they went into Jericho, everything they brought back was to be given to the Lord or destroyed. And that God is telling us that our first fruits belong to the Lord. As you know here at Calvary Chapel, we don't, you know, we don't ask you for your money ever. We just don't. Because we want you to give because God's put it on your heart. Amen? God loves a cheerful giver. But at the same time, whether it's your finances or your gifting or your talents, the first of what we have belongs to the Lord, not what's left. Amen? God doesn't get what's left over. He doesn't get the last of our day, the last of what we have. We should give every, because guess what? 100% of everything we have belongs to the Lord. Amen? And so we give him the first fruits. And sadly, Achan decided he had another plan. And instead of giving it to the Lord, he stole some of it and brought it back with him. And because of that, the children of Israel were cursed. Now, they missed out on God's highest. And they were going to struggle difficulty. And they were going to be defeated because they didn't put God first. And Joshua made the mistake of sending spies out to check out Ai. They get to Ai, they see this little city, and they say, oh, we can take care of these guys without God's help. I mean, there's a little city. Let's just send a few thousand people. We don't have to send the whole army. And we know what happened. They got whipped at Ai. Now, why did that happen? Because there was sin in the camp. And the reason that Joshua didn't know there was sin in the camp, because Joshua did not seek the Lord. Can I encourage you? 
We need to be seeking the Lord every day and throughout the day for everything. Amen? When we go before God and make decisions without God, don't be surprised when it turns into a train wreck. Don't be surprised when you go outside of God's will and do things your own way and it ends up a mess. Don't blame God. It's not His fault. He would have kept you from it. Now they repented. They went back into Ai. And this time, they wiped Ai out. And sadly, if Achan had only waited... God then let them have, this, have the spoils. God's timing is always perfect. Now, that battle was won, and you would think, okay, they won some battles. And guess what? The battles just kept getting greater. Last couple of weeks in Joshua chapter 10, we found out that Joshua, being a type or a picture of Christ, remember Moses is a picture of the law, Joshua's name in the New Testament is Jesus. Old Testament, Joshua, New Testament, Jesus, the name is Yahshua, Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? That means, again, we've seen that Moses could not bring them into the land. Moses being a type of the law. Only Jesus could. Only Jesus can bring you and I into the promise. We can't get there by keeping the law. But with Joshua being a type or a picture, we see that God uses him to battle the enemy. Now, they come into the land, and you know, they were duped by the Gibeonites, and because of that, they accepted the Gibeonites in, and they were protecting them. And now, they have these huge enemies in front of them, and they use a method that has now been used by military strategists ever since. Do you know the book of Joshua is still studied by people who study military strategy to this day? The divide and conquer came from the book of Joshua. They went right down the middle, they went to the south, and they wiped out all the southern armies, as we saw in Joshua chapter 10. Now, it's important to note that in a spirit-filled life, we must still have discipline and seek direction and strategy. We don't just say, oh, the Holy Spirit's in control, so we'll just flow with it. And you know what, again, we're not to be led by the plans or the directions as, I, as I've, you've heard me say before, you know, strategy, administration, and planning are poor masters, but they're good servants. You know what, we should not be, when you wake up in the morning, we need to be led by the Spirit and seeking God first. But as a pastor, we need to have a plan. As a Christian, you need to have a plan. You know, we don't just sit around at home and say, well, the rent's due in a week, and you know, let's just go with the flow, man, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I know what's going to happen, I'll tell you right now. You're going to be on the street in a week, all right? You know, we need to be diligent. We need to be faithful. And so with that heart in mind, even though they're filled with the Spirit of the living God, even though it's, they're in the center of God's will, even though the Lord's leading them, they needed to have the plan that came from God. And God's given us a plan, you guys. You heard me say it on Sunday, right? 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, 1 central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And so this is the instruction manual for life. You want direction for your life? Read the book, don't wait for the movie, get in God's word, he'll give you some direction. Now, the real secret here is Joshua turned and followed the Lord and that's why God was blessing him. It wasn't all the strategy, it wasn't all the discipline, although that's part of God's plan. If he's not following the Lord, all the strategy in the world is not going to do you any good. And we're going to learn in tonight's text that we don't follow the world's example, we follow the Lord's example. We don't try to take the things that the world uses as successful and put it into the church to make the church successful, contrary to some books you might read today, okay? Now, we saw last week God's response to those who turned to Him in faith, that He delivers them from the battle. But tonight, I titled the message, for those of you who take notes, there's going to be four points, 
A recipe for spiritual growth. And it might not be what you think. A recipe for spiritual growth. The first thing is great obstacles. A recipe for spiritual growth. Number one, great obstacles and trials. Number two, after you go through those obstacles and trials, you face this great difficulty, is God's faithful reassurance. God is always going to be there to remind you of His faithfulness. He's willing, He desires to do that, and He does that as we'll see tonight through His Word. We'll then see not only the great obstacles and and the Lord's faithful reassurance, but Joshua's faithful response. Guys, we need to not just know what God's Word says, we need to respond to it. We can't just read it and know it and have an idea what it means, but if we don't respond, it's meaningless. And then lastly, the result is increased faith and spiritual growth to face the even greater battles that will be before us. So in verse 1, a recipe for spiritual growth that begins with great obstacles, trials, and difficulty. Because Israel now is going to face their greatest enemy yet. But here's the thing, you guys, as we'll see. Every trial they've gone through is preparation for the next one. And it's, you know, we're faithful in the small things. God can entrust us with greater things. As we see God move in the smaller areas of life, we're prepared for the greater difficulties and trials that will face us. Look at verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard these things. Jabin, the king of Hazar. This guy's kind of the counterpart of the guy we saw last week. Remember the southern leader's name was Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek means the Lord of righteousness. And this guy did not live up to his name. Amen? Instead, he was a picture or a type of the Antichrist as he mounted up great armies to come against Joshua, who's a picture of Jesus. And he mounted up all these armies that came against him and they were soundly defeated. Well, now... We hear that Jabin, the king of Hazor, which is the greatest kingdom in the north, the the biggest city, it's over 200 acres, give you an idea, Jericho was 8 acres. This city's 200 acres, mighty fortress, a royal city. And this guy's the king of that city. Adonai Zedek was the king of Jerusalem. He mounted up people in the south. Now Hazor, or, or Jabin, king of Hazor, has now heard how Israel has wiped out the southern armies, how they wiped out Ai, how they wiped out Jericho. No doubt how they crossed over the Red Sea and killed Sihon and Og and all that they had done. And so what does he do? Repent? That's what you should do, amen? When you hear about the greatness of God, it ought to drive you to your knees, not to your weapons. And so what we see here, sadly, is that he thinks, well, I've heard all of this, so what does he do? Jabin, his name means he shall understand, but he doesn't get it. His name means the wise or intelligent one. People are caught up in their own intellect today and they just don't get it. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you do not fear God, you have no wisdom. People get upset with me when I say that. Take it up with the author, the Bible says it, amen? If you don't fear God, you have no wisdom. None. Well, Einstein was so wise. No, he wasn't. He may have had some intellect, but he was not wise. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Hazor means fortified city. So you got the king, the intelligent one, with a fortified city who hears all these things and decides, we got to go take care of this enemy. We got to go fight against them. We got to bring a battle against Joshua and the children of Israel. Israel. Look what it says there. And he sent to Jobab, 
king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Ashphas, and of the kings who were from the north of the mountains, in the plains south of Tinneroth, in the lowland, in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and in the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Now, who are all these people? Where do they all come from? When he heard what God was doing, he responded. When people hear what God is doing today, they respond one way or another. It either brings about repentance and brokenness or rebellion. You know, I saw a bumper sticker yesterday, and I have to confess the frailties of your pastor. You know I'm a sinner saved by grace. One beggar leading another beggar to the bread, and you guys all know that because you spend time with me, right? So here's the point, though. I'll tell you what, there are things that get me mad. And this person had this car, and on their car it said, born right the first time, exclamation point. Now what does that mean? I don't need to be born again. I was born right the first time. People respond to God in different ways, amen? Some shake their fist at God. Some say, we're not going to have Merry Christmas. It's Jesus' birthday, by the way, amen? Amen. Say, happy birthday, Jesus. I don't even bother with Merry Christmas. I just say, happy Jesus' birthday. That makes it real clear, right? (laughs) But here's the point, that there are people that respond to God in different ways, and we either respond with brokenness and repentance, or we respond in rebellion, shaking our fist at God, angry. Can't have prayer in school. We've got to get that Jesus out of here. Don't have that public nativity scene. Oh, right? Anger. Bitterness toward God. This is, these kings are gathering up together and not to go and repent together, but to strike out. Now, these cities, Chinneroth in your Bible, just so you know, that is the Sea of Galilee. The Old Testament, Chinneroth, and the New Testament, Galilee, Sea of Galilee, also the Sea of Tiberias. The mountains to the north is Mount Naphtali. Those of you guys who are going to Israel with us in March, we're going to look up at Mount Naphtali. We're going to be sitting in the Sea of Galilee. It's awesome. Sea of Galilee, to me, personal opinion, the most beautiful place on this planet. Absolutely, unbelievably beautiful. It's really more of a lake than a sea. And it's in the shape of a harp. That's what Chenereth means, harp. It's in the shape of a harp and clear water, clean water, it's fresh water, comes from the Jordan and goes through the sea. And so these armies are from the area of the Sea of Galilee, the very place where Jesus would spend two-thirds of his ministry. Right in this, this area, his hometown, Capernaum, where he spent much of his time as an adult. That's the area where all these armies are mounting up to come fight against Joshua. Now, in verse 3, it names six major cities, or six major kingdoms, if you will. And what's interesting is these are the six major nations, the big six, that God had promised to give Israel victory over in Exodus 34. But you know, you know what? I No doubt if they read that, they probably thought they were going to fight them one at a time. You get six mighty armies, you probably figure, well, you know, each one's going to be difficult. What about when all six of them come together? This is a major, major undertaking How many of you have ever felt like all the trials are hitting you at the same time? Okay, Lord, I can take one little thing, but lost my job and my health and difficulties and family problems and my car is broken down and I don't have any money and Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, they're all coming, Lord. But remember that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, amen? 
And by seeing the greatness of all the armies coming together, they were going to get to see the greatness of their God defeating them all together. All this is prompted by one thing. Why are they gathering together? Because they had seen Israel's success and victory. And when you and I walk in victory, guess what? We become targets for the enemy. Why are they all getting together? Because they realize we've got to do something. They've wiped out the south. God's got their, His hand upon them. We've got to go against them full force. And the enemy will do the same with us. Look at verse 4. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, and very many horses and chariots. Two things indicate this is the greatest challenge that Israel had faced to date. Number one, the size of the army. As many people as the sand that is on the seashore. I find that interesting because where else do we see those words? A promise to Abraham. God said your descendants will be as the sand that is on the seashore. Here comes an enemy that is as great in number as the promise that God had given to Abraham. Now, I don't know how accurate it is, but Josephus was a first century writer. Many of you probably have heard of him. He was not a Christian. He was a Jewish man who wasn't even a, a who followed Judaism. But he was a historian that many people quote. And according to him, we don't know, but according to him, this army was about 300,000 people. And they had roughly 21,000 chariots and 10,000 cavalrymen, guys on horseback. Now back in those days, that's like tanks. You know, a guy in a chariot riding along with spears in his hands and armor on, that's bad news when you're walking, okay? That makes things real difficult for you. So they got 21,000 equivalents of tanks, 10,000 guys on horseback, and 300,000 people coming at them. That's a pretty ominous foe. Again, without God, you're done. Without the Lord on your side, you'd say, what in the world can I do? So the army was not only greater in number, but technologically superior. They had the greatest and most formidable army that they had faced. Now, at the same time, they certainly got, were able to, get, to take care of the Egyptians, right? Didn't God wipe out Egypt? They had a few chariots, too. How'd that work out for them? When I was a kid, we used to sing a song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Ever heard that song before? All of Pharaoh's people did the dead man float. It's part of the song. And it's true, because they came after God's people, but God was on their side. Now, in this case, it feels like everybody's coming against them. The challenge brought Israel, again, seemingly to a place of, of desperation. And we often find that the challenges facing us in our Christian life increase each step of the way. Every step Israel makes in the center of God's will, every step they make going deeper and deeper into the land of promise, the greater and greater the enemy is that's before them. You know what? In the Bible, I can think of few men outside of Jesus Christ himself who was used more mightily than the Apostle Paul. But I also can think of few men that suffered greater trials than the Apostle Paul. In God's Word, you will notice that those who are used greatest are those who went through the most. The people that minister to me most as pastors are those who've gone through the greatest trials and yet remain faithful. They minister to me. I'm blessed by that because I know there, again, you've heard me say it many times, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. If it's never been tested, it's not faith. 
Faith is trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. And God uses each victory as a springboard for what we're going to face in the future. Every time we go through difficulty and God comes through, our faith is increased, isn't it? God came through again. God came through again. Here's a greater foe. God came through again. And here's where Israel is. They're at that place where God needs to come through again. Verse 5. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now I love this because you know the Bible rocks. You've heard me say that. But I love this because the waters of Merom, guess where they are? They're in Megiddo or Armageddon. So where are these armies mounted up? In Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel. This is where, guess what? In the end times, all the armies are going to be mounted up, not against Joshua, but the other Yahshua, Jesus. Amen? This is a foreshadowing of that which was to come. Remember last week in Joshua 10? They took the kings and they were hung and they were buried in a cave with a rock rolled over it. Who's that all about? Jesus Christ. And guess what? Every chapter in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And yet again, we see this picture of the end times. We'll continue to see it as we move on through the text. So a recipe for spiritual growth. It begins often with a great obstacle or trial. Guys, we can grow without there being trials, but I believe the greatest growth comes through trials. We can grow by simply seeking God and feeding on His Word and growing in our faith. We absolutely can do that. But I believe that we find out how much we've grown through trials, and it's often the area where we grow the most. So we've seen the great obstacle. Pretty awesome, isn't it? 300,000 people coming against you, 21,000 chariots, 10,000 people on horseback, and you don't have any weapons like that. Nothing like that at all. You've got swords in your hand. And you know what? The sword is a representation of what? God's Word. And God's Word is sufficient no matter how great the enemy. So we've seen the great obstacle. Let's look now at God's faithful response in this recipe for spiritual growth. So here's the enemy. They're all mounted up. It seems hopeless. Wow, we're we're outnumbered. What are we going to do? Look at the first three words of verse 6. What does it say? Everybody read it out loud. But the Lord. But the Lord. Huge army, huge enemy, we're outnumbered, what are we going to do? But the Lord. Don't you love that? When you see but the Lord, forget everything else before it, amen? It doesn't matter how great it is, God's going to take care of it. But the Lord, great enemy, foe beyond number, weapons we can't even touch, but the Lord said to Joshua, Again, an overwhelming enemy, these, these great difficulties, and it's during these times we need to remember who's in control. Who is it? The Lord. The Lord is in control. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is the one we turn to. And it says, but the Lord said to Joshua. So what's the Lord going to do? The Lord speaks to Joshua to remind him of his promises, to reassure him of his faithfulness, and to encourage him in the midst of difficulty. You know what? That's exactly what the Lord wants to do to you. When you're in the midst of difficulty, He wants to remind you of His promises. He wants to reassure you of His faithfulness. He wants to come alongside you and take the fear away that you're struggling with. Now, Joshua was there and the Lord showed up and spoke to him. How does the Lord speak to us today? The main way is in your hand. You're going through trials. The Lord wants to speak to you you got to blow the dust off of this. Amen? 
You've got to turn off the rerun and open up your Bible. I'm struggling. The Lord's not speaking. No, you're not listening. Amen? God's speaking. We're just not paying attention. We're so busy, you know, trying to spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. We're doing all that kind of stuff. And we're just chasing after all the things in this world. And the Lord's right there with the answer in Teacher's Edition, right? Here it is. Open it up. It's got the answers in it. And God just wants us to spend time in His Word. You know, it's interesting to me. I very rarely sit down and meet with people whose marriages are falling apart when they're word together. I very rarely sit down and talk to people who are just totally struggling, who are spending time in God's Word. I ask these two questions at the beginning of most counseling sessions, and usually when there's a great struggle, the answer is the same. How's your prayer life? Don't really have one. How much time do you spend in the Word? Not much. Well, guess what? We need to spend time in God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, or Joshua, And the Lord wants to speak to us. Amen? He wants to speak to us. He'll speak to us through His Word. Along with, you know, He can speak to us through the leading of the Spirit. He can speak to us through other believers. But He's got His Word in our hands for a reason. Now what does He say to Joshua? Do not be afraid. You know what that means? It means He was afraid. You don't tell somebody, don't be afraid if they're not afraid. Joshua. Joshua. Afraid. That's a, that should be an encouragement for all of us who are ever afraid. Amen? Because Joshua was afraid. And sometimes, no matter how spiritually mature you may be, even the most mighty men and women of God have fears and great difficulty. Here's the key. What do you do with your fears? When you're afraid, where do you go? Don't go to the bottle of scotch. Don't go to the world for answers. Don't turn on Oprah and hope she's got your topic covered. Or Dr. Phil or anybody else. Go to the Lord, amen? Go straight to Almighty God who has the answers. When we're afraid, we can turn to the Lord. He's right there. He loves us. And look what he says. Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Tomorrow, through his word, the Lord gave Joshua a fresh confirmation of his promises. And for you and I, through his word, he'll give us a fresh confirmation of his promises. Can I encourage you? January 1st is 10 days away. If you don't have a Bible study plan, start one. Read through the book, next, the Bible next year, along with whatever else you read. Read through the Bible next year, amen? I have one of those, those, we don't make any money in the bookstore, by the way. I'm not trying to sell anything. But you know what? We have those through the Bible in the year. I have one by my bed, along with my normal reading. I love it because it takes you, in a year, you'll read the entire Bible. And you know if you're on January 8th in May, you're not doing good. There's some instant accountability in there, amen? If you're going right through it and you can put your bookmark in there, it keeps you accountable. That's a good thing. And so he spoke to them and, and through the word, re- re-encouraged them through his word, reassured them, exhorted them, reminded them. And that's what the Lord wants to do with us. Look what he says there, the end of the verse. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, there's a movie called Chariots of Fire. This would be Chariots on Fire, right? And he says here, you're gonna, I don't care how many chariots they have, you're going to be burning them all, and, and their horses, you're going to hamstring them. Now, hamstring a horse means you cut its back leg, and it can't move anymore. 
It becomes of no value militarily anymore. So you're going to hamstring their horses and you're going to burn all their chariots. And why did God want them to do this? He wanted them to trust in the Lord. God, you know, if you, if you want to battle and somebody had a really sweet weapon, wouldn't you want to start using it yourself? I mean, that would be the connotation to say, hey, you know, we don't have any chariots. We just tore those guys up. We got a whole new, you know, armory, armory now. Look what we got. We got 21,000 chariots. The Lord said, burn them. You know why? The Word of God says some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. God didn't want them trusting in tanks and nuclear bombs and lasers. Or, you know, he said, trust me. Amen? So burn them up so you've got to keep trusting me. Burn them up so you don't put your faith in anything else. In Deuteronomy 17, it tells the kings not to multiply horses. Again, we need to be very, very careful we think we can borrow from the world to accomplish God's purposes. God doesn't want us to do that, you guys. He doesn't want us to take, oh, that works in the world, so let's adapt it to the church. We've already got the best manual in the world in our hands. We don't need to copy from, you know, Fifth Avenue or whoever else's marketing plan is working today. Amen? God's Word is sufficient. God's, God's given us a real clear plan for the Bible. It's Acts 2.42. Read it. That's God's plan for the church. Amen? It's right there, right in front of us. So, we see the, the recipe for spiritual growth, the great obstacles in front of them, God's faithful reassurance through His Word dispelling fear. Now we're going to see Joshua's faithful response. So the Lord's told him, look, don't be afraid. You're going to be burning their chariots. You're going to hamstring their horses. But what did Joshua still need to do? He needed to do what? Respond in obedience. Guys, we can know what the Bible says, and we can choose not to obey it. Right? Am I the only one that's ever done that? That's what we do. God's Word says, we go, yeah, but you know, my circumstances are just kind of unique. <laughs> right? Well, the Bible works for most people, but, you know, the Lord didn't know about my circumstances when He wrote the Bible. Yes, He did. Amen? And we start making excuses and reasons why we shouldn't really have to follow it, even though it's pretty good for others. Right? Well, He needs to respond. Here's where the spiritual growth comes from, you guys. We're in the trial. Here's what God's Word says. Here's how He's encouraged us and reinforced it to us. Now we respond. Look at verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. Now what does it say? They went back and took a vote. They went back and had a great debate and fasted and prayed about it. Guys, there's times to fast and pray and we should be doing that, but there's times when we don't have to fast and pray. People tell me they're praying about whether or not they should date an unbeliever. You don't have to pray about that. Don't do it. Amen? I just recently had a young man call me and say, Hey, Pastor Dave, there's an opportunity in India where you can speak to 15,000 people a night for a week and share the gospel. Do you want to do it? Why don't you pray about it? I go, bro, I ain't got to pray about that. When is it? Right? You don't have to, hey, I'd really love for you to share with me the gospel and how I can be saved. Well, let me pray about it. You don't have to pray about that. There are certain things we should pray about and other things we don't have to. And when God spoke to Joshua, he didn't go back and fast and pray. He responded and obeyed. Amen? And he did it suddenly, quickly, immediately. And I love that. God desires that we respond in obedience. Joshua, having received reassurance through God's word, responds in faithful and fearless obedience to God's command. 
The word there, attack them, guess what? It was 65 miles away. And they didn't have any chariots or horses. This was a long jog, amen? And they got their army up, and they went 65 miles immediately. Why? Because God said. We need more of that in the body of Christ today, amen? God said, that's enough. Let's go. Let's go do it. God said it. Let's be obedient to it. Verse 8. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them, and chased them to greater Sidon, and the brook Meserapoth, and the valley of Mizpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. Guess what? The Lord delivered them into their hand, but the Lord delivered after they responded by faith and obedience. So often we're looking for God to do it, but God wants to use us as the tools in His hands. God does it, but we're the tools in His hands. Amen? God gets all the glory, but He wants to use us. That He might be glorified through us. That our faith might grow. That we might learn to walk in in greater and deeper fellowship with Him. Joshua fought with obedience, doing exactly as the Lord had said. And God brought the great victory. And I love this, that he also fought with passion and commitment. Because he didn't stop till God told him he was done. Guys, God doesn't want you to tiptoe at stuff He's called you to do. Full speed. Did the Apostle Paul kind of dabble with it? John the Baptist, right? I think I'll check it out for a minute, right? No, that's not God. God says, you calls you, you say, yes, Lord. Your servant hears. What do you want me to do? Full speed, amen? God's looking. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole are seeking for one he can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. God's looking for that man or woman who'll say, God, what's your, what is your heart for me? What is your design for my life? What do you want me to do? And then do it full speed. Amen? We do, don't we do worldly things full speed? We do. Let's do godly things full speed. Reckless abandon for Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. And so they go out and they, and they keep going until they wipe the enemy out. So Joshua did to them, verse 9, as the Lord had told him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. He didn't let up until he had done exactly what God had told him to do. Verse 10. Joshua turned back at the time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. Remember, it was Jabin, the king of Hazor, that had brought this mighty army together. And as soon as they had chased down the enemy and wiped him out, he turned back to Hazor, the first city they went to, the mighty fortress, this 200-acre city, the greatest, the, the largest, and wiped him out. And went after the king and destroyed him with what? The edge of what? Sword, God's word in our lives, okay? Now, it's interesting that he dealt with the greatest part of the problem first. As Christians, sometimes we want to deal with all the minor stuff and leave the big stuff alone. Well, that's the big part. I'm not ready to give that up yet. And we have, again, excuses, like I said before. I come from a dysfunctional family. Adam and Eve, Cain killed Abel. Every family's been dysfunctional. First family, one brother killed the other. Amen? Dysfunctional. Just change the word to sinful. I come from a sinful family. How many people come from sinful families? Raise your hand. Okay, there it is. And so we wanted to say, oh, but that's my reason that I can't, you know, I can't let go of it. I got this stuff. I got issues to work through. Worked through already. Amen? Tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full. Praise God. Amen? 
And we don't have to sit here and hash and praise God, the guy who, you know, again, I can't do my work because of my boss, and I can't do this because of my coworkers, and my neighbor, and oh, instead of just saying, Lord, here's the greatest struggle in my life, let's deal with that first. That's exactly what Joshua did. He didn't say, let's go pick off the small people, you know, the smaller armies first. Let's go right after the greatest one. Let's take care of it. Whatever your greatest struggle is, your greatest trial, don't hide it. You know, the Lord already knows, Amen. You know, you're not getting over it. You're not hiding from him. Share it with another and say, here's my struggle. Let's pray for you. Verse 11 through 14. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. They burned Hazar with fire. So all the city of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took the, and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned not None of them, except Hazar only, which Joshua burned. Verse 14. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took his booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left how many breathing? None. None. Again, God has called us to obey his word completely. They're not the ten suggestions. Amen? <laughs> Not the ten good ideas. Now again, we're saved by grace, not by the law. Amen. We're not, we're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. But again, as we've said many times, it's not faith or works, or faith plus works. It's faith that works. And when we fall in love with the Lord, then, then holiness will be a natural outpouring of who we are. Not trying to earn God's favor. Not trying to be good enough so God will love us. He already loves you. And no matter how, good, you know, how many good things you do, He's not going to love you any more than He already does. But at the same time, God's desire is that we would be in, walk in obedience. Again, you've heard me say this so many times, but it's so true. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. It's not bad because God said not to do it. It's forbidden because God knows it will harm you. He loves you. He's keeping you from the very things that will destroy you. And you know what? There was no room to keep any of the flesh alive. It all had to be destroyed. It must be put to death completely. And the source of its destruction, guys, in your own life, holding on to the flesh, the story of Saul and Agag, right? Supposed to kill all the Amalekites. He brings the king back with him. The Amalekites are a type of the flesh. And he brings back the king. He hangs on to the worst habit he's got. Hangs on to the biggest struggle, biggest trial. And Samuel shows up, who's in his 90s at this point, and pulls out a sword and hacks Agag up into small pieces. People struggle with that kind of visual in the Bible. But you know what? The Word of God, the sword, will destroy those great struggles in our life. And the flesh needs to be put to death. We don't hold on to it, make excuses for it. We need to die to it, amen? But we need to die to it every day. It's a constant battle. The source of its destruction is the edge of the sword, the word of God. Verse 15. As the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What do we learn from this? Obedience. Joshua learned to obey what God commanded, and that's why he was successful. Sometimes we think we can do it our own way, like we're smarter than God. It's kind of like when your kids are like six and they think they know better than you. 
And the older you get, as you've heard me say, the smarter your parents are. And it's so true that the more you fall in love with the Lord, the more you realize how His wisdom is infinite. And why would I want to do anything apart from His leading? As the Lord commanded Moses, Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. As the Lord commanded Dave, my heart would be, and so Dave did, I'm fall short. Praise God for His grace. How about you? Amen? But our heart ought to be that we would learn from that example. This is where growth spiritually comes from. In the midst of difficulties, responding in obedience. Verse 16. Thus Joshua took all this land and mountain country, all the south and all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, and the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Now, from verse 16 on, it talks about the rest of the battle that would take place in Canaan. We'll see it in greater detail in the coming chapters. But you know what? This battle went on for a long time. Even though they had been obedient, even though he had been faithful, even though he had defeated the greatest army, there were still other armies to be defeated. Even when you get to the point where you're not struggling with alcohol anymore, there's going to be other battles in your life. Amen? Amen. Even when you get to the point where you're not struggling with pornography or, or pride or a foul mouth or whatever your major struggle was, you know, finances or whatever, there's still going to be other things that need to be dealt with. Overcome the great issue, and that's exactly where Joshua's at. Okay, they've overcome the greatest enemy. There's other things that need to be dealt with, and each one of them is dealt with the same way with the sword. What is that again a picture of? God's Word. From Edom in the south, Mount Hermon in the northeast, the Valley of Lebanon. We'll get more details in the coming chapters. And it says in verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. We know later, by the age of Caleb, that's documented, that it was seven years that he fought. I find that interesting. Seven years. In the Bible, number of completeness, number of perfection, but also in the Bible... Remember, they were mounted up where to start this battle? The Valley of Armageddon, right? A seven-year period during which the land was cleansed. Guess what that's a picture of? Tribulation. The cleansing of the land in preparation for a time of rest. There's going to be a seven-year period after we are raptured as the church, between the time we are raptured until we return and God sets up His millennial kingdom, we will rule and reign with Him for a thousand years, seeing what the world would have been like had He been in charge. And I can't wait. How about you? Amen? It's going to be great. We're going to say happy Jesus' birthday to everybody. Amen? It won't be happy holidays or anything else. Nobody's going to be talking about Buddha or anything else, right? So Joshua made a war. For a long time, again, a type of the tribulation period, cleaning out the land. And the application, again, for you and I today is that there still and always will be battles to be fought. Don't stop until the mission is complete. I met an older man not too long ago, and he told me that he didn't have to go to church anymore because he'd been a Christian for 40 years, and he had, had it all, he had it all figured out. And I said, bro, if you don't have any other problem, you got one. It's called pride. Amen? <laughs> you got the sin of pride, I can tell you that right now. And you got several others because you're not in fellowship. You're not using the gifts God's given you to minister to others. Amen? 
Forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. And all the others they took in battle. So just the, Gib- the Hivites who were from Gibeon, remember they came in and pretended to be from a faraway land. They entered into a treaty. They were the only ones. But it shows that God in the midst of this, there was still grace. And I believe in the midst of the great tribulation, there will be, as we know from the word, those who are delivered through it. Right? I'm glad I'm not going to be here. Amen? I don't want to be here. I'm not interested. There's people who say, we're going to be here for the tribulation. Well, you enjoy it. I'll be in heaven. All right? But God has not appointed us under wrath, and He's not dropping 120-pound hailstones on His kids. Amen? Just not, he's a perfect holy God. He's not going to do that. But we know that in the midst of all that, there will be those who are delivered, just as the Gibeonites were delivered in the midst of God's righteous judgment coming upon Canaan. There were those who were delivered out of it. Now, some people look at these kinds of things. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that He might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that He might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. A lot of people struggle when they hear that the Lord hardened their hearts. How many of you guys struggle with that? The Lord hardened their hearts. Now, let me make it real clear to you. Every time you see this in Scripture, whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's these cases here, you got them in the New Testament as well, in the book of Romans. You know what? Every time God hardened their heart, it was only after they rejected Him over and over and over and over. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. At least seven times. And then it says, and then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those who harden their heart or have a hard heart, it begins with their own rejection of what the Lord has offered them, and eventually He gives them what they've been asking for. God doesn't harden the heart of somebody who's repentant and broken. Amen? He allows the heart to be hardened of those who are rebellious and refuse to repent. We have seen that God is willing to show mercy. He showed it to Rahab and the Gibeonites. This is a situation where sin's consequences come upon those who refuse to repent. Those who harden their own hearts. So a recipe for spiritual growth. We have one more thing. We have great obstacles. Then God's faithful reassurance through His Word. I'm still with you. Then Joshua's faithful response. Both sudden, immediate, and also complete. And now lastly, the result is increased faith and spiritual growth. And I love these last three verses. Look what it says. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. Now, who are the Anakim? They are the giants. The Anakim were giants. Some of the descendants of Anakim, because not all of them were wiped out, only those in Israel, one of the descendants was a man by the name of Goliath. Goliath was an Anakim, and he was a giant. He was anywhere from nine and a half to 12 feet tall. He weighed between 625 and 900 pounds. 12 feet, 900, that dude joked, all right? And we know he was big because the head of his spear weighed 25 pounds. That's a big spear, man. The head of most people's spear weighed ounces. It's 25 pounds. He's throwing it, right? Now, 
Why did they flee Israel to begin with? The previous generation. Because they saw what? The giants in the land. And they saw the giants and they ran away. And now we see faithful Joshua destroying the very same giants that the previous generation fled from. Now I find it interesting that they they defeat the giants last, not first. And I find that interesting because God was building up their faith and preparing them so they could fight the giants and do it with great faith. Amen? Often we look and we see the faith of of somebody like Paul and we think, I could never be like that. You're right, right now you can't. But you can be on your way to being like that. Amen? I could never have that kind of faith of some of the missionaries I've read of. I could never lay down my life the way some people I know have. I could never serve God full time the way some people do. I could never do that. Not very often that God has you jump from, you know, here all, you know, I I don't want to give my life to the Lord. He'll send me off to Africa. I've had people tell me that. If I pray, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, I'll be in the jungles of New Guinea tomorrow afternoon, right? No. You know what? If you are, it'll be because you want to be. When you're walking with the Lord, His will becomes your desire and your passion. It becomes a get-to and not a have-to. And here they go in and wipe out the very enemy they were once so fearful of. How did they do it? They had grown spiritually through the trials that had been before them. The trials they had seen, the the giants that the previous generation was afraid of, because they had been walking with God and seen God work, that fear was no longer there. And they were willing to step out in faith. Guys, David defeated Goliath, right? But do you know David was prepared for that battle long before that? It tells us in 1 Samuel 17 that David kept his father's sheep and came a lion and a bear, took a lamb out of the flock, and I went out after them and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he rose against me, and I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. He caught a lion by his beard. David. You think he might be ready for Goliath? They might be a little bit of a training ground? He saw God's hand with him when a lion came and when a bear came. And, the fill, and it says there, Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be just like one of them. Everybody else, Goliath came down. <laughs> Forty days and nights, number of testing in the Bible. I defy you, send out your man. You know, If you defeat me, we'll follow you. And if I defeat your man, then you will be our slaves. And every time Goliath came out, everybody went, oh, and ran away. In comes David delivering cheese to his brothers. That's what the Bible says. He's like the milkman, right? He's showing up with cheese, milk products, right? He shows up, he hears the Philistine and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God? Everybody else failed because they, they saw, you know, 9 to 12 feet tall against mere man, and he saw mere man against Almighty God. He said, you know what? God was with me and wiped out a lion. God was with me and wiped out a bear, and this guy is going to be just like him. Guys, if we will step out in the small things, God will use us in the great things. Amen? Amen. Too often we're afraid of Goliath, but we need to learn to be faithful in the smaller enemies that are brought before us. The Lord didn't start out Israel with the northern alliance. He ended up there. He didn't start out with the giants. He brought the giants at the very end. As we're faithful in the small things, God will entrust us with the greater. It says there of the, of the Anakim, they killed all the ones in Israel, second part of verse 22, They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. That's where Goliath is going to come from. 
Last verse. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance according to their division by tribes. Then what does it say? Then the land what? Rested Rested from war. Now that's interesting. Armageddon. Seven-year period of cleansing, at the end of which the land what? Rested from war. What's that a picture of? The millennial kingdom. At the end of the battle, the land rested. At the end of the battle, we will enter into the rest of Almighty God and rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. Does the Bible rock or what? Amen? So while He took the land, not every town and village had been conquered yet, as we're going to see, and that each tribe would have to then go in and take some of the the few that were left, some of the small villages that were still there that had not entered into the battle. You know what? The Lord has already won the battle, but you and I still have to be faithful and obedient in the smaller battles that are around us. Amen? He's won the main battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's won it. But God desires that we would walk in obedience. Jesus has done His part. It's time for you and I to respond, just as Joshua had done his part, and it was time for the individual tribes to respond. And it says, then the land rested from war, again at the end of that seven-year cleansing. So, a recipe for spiritual growth. Again, we can grow many other ways, but one of the greatest ways is a great obstacle that we're going through. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Israel faces his greatest enemy yet. And then in the middle of that, the Lord speaks to him. And you know what? In the middle of our greatest trial, the Lord wants to speak to us through his word. Amen? Maybe through another brother. Maybe through prayer. And then Joshua's faithful response. When he hears the word of God, he doesn't mull it over or think about it. He responds to it. Amen? He responds in obedience and he keeps going till it's complete. And then lastly, we see the result is increased faith and spiritual growth. In the end, he goes and fights the very giants that the previous generation ran away from. And he did it with great faith and confidence. Why? Because he had seen God work. Guys, We can stand in the face of giants if we will simply walk with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promises in your word. Lord, I pray for those who are here tonight that may be going through difficulties and trials even right now. Father, may they count it all joy. And Lord, I pray in the midst of it, it would be an opportunity for growth. Lord, for each of us who maybe are not in the midst of a trial right now, Lord, I pray that we'd still seek to draw closer to you through your word through times of prayer. Lord, may you prepare us for the trials that are coming in life. And Lord, at this greatest of seasons, as we celebrate the birth of your Son, Lord, I pray for divine appointments. I pray for opportunities in the next few days to share with people, to invite them to church on Sunday, to point them to the hope that lies within us, the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We thank you that you desire to speak to us. Help us, help us to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Everybody stand. We'll close in worship.